Amen. Let's bow our heads and continue that prayer to the Lord. Jesus, we come before you this morning with confidence and joy, knowing that you reign. There's no one who compares to you in power and in glory. You are seated today at the right hand of the Father, and we anticipate that time when you will return and establish your kingdom. And until that day comes, we know that you will shepherd us, you will be with us, you'll lead us, you will feed us and nourish our faith, and ultimately our destiny is to dwell in your house forever. Lord, I pray that these precious truths would not just be words sung today, but they would really be uh, the confidence that is in our hearts. We ask, Lord, that as we now look into your word, that you would help us to see you. That we would say with the psalmist that there's one thing we desire, there's one thing that we're seeking, and that's to behold you and to dwell with you. We know that in order to see your face, in order to dwell in your house, we're dependent on grace. We're dependent on your work. For this is not something we can accomplish, not something we can earn. So we come expectantly and eagerly, Lord, that the same grace that you demonstrated at the cross the same grace that you have shown many of us over and over again throughout life, that that grace would be today experienced afresh, that you would be at work in us, that Christ would be formed in us. We pray for your help and for the work of your spirit. Amen. You can open your Bibles once again to the book of Exodus. I will be covering several chapters worth of material today, sort of selectively, as we did last week, Exodus 25, 26, through about chapter 30. It's been a great um, time of worship already together. Um, I had to go get a drink of water because I'm like losing my voice from singing those songs. It's just awesome to consider who Jesus is and what he is at work doing in this world. Worship has always been essential for the people of God. We need it. And it is of utmost importance for us in terms of how we relate to the God of our salvation And really, the last 16 chapters in the book of Exodus, the final 16 chapters, are all about worship, with how a redeemed people, referring to Israel in that day and age, were brought into this covenant with their God, and how it was that they could approach him, how it was that they were supposed to worship him. So this has to do with the tabernacle, and the items in the tabernacle, and the priests who served there in the tabernacle. And there's a lot here for us to learn. There's much for us to reflect on as we look back and see not just blueprints and instructions for for the, the concrete materials that were used. I think we see more than that in Exodus. We're able to see what God was doing. We're able to see prototypes for what he's doing today in the church as we recognize the patterns of how he works throughout history. So our aim today is to sort of take a little tour through the tabernacle. Last week, we looked at the layout of the tabernacle, the structure itself. But today, I want to look at what's in the tabernacle and consider what it reveals to us about God, what it shows us about worship, and to consider how the the furnishings of the tabernacle themselves are meant to direct our hearts to Christ, Because as we said at the beginning of this service, that is at all times our most pressing need, to see him, to behold his glory. So as I mentioned last week, we looked at the structure of the tabernacle. There's the courtyard, there's the the tent that's built within that has these two rooms. The first is the holy place, 
And then you enter into the the central sanctuary, the most holy place. And we saw that the tabernacle is all about holiness. It's about separating the unholy from the holy. But what makes the tabernacle special, what makes it holy in the first place, is not the tent itself. It's what's inside. It's It's what takes place in the tabernacle. So if you're going to walk through the tabernacle... Uh, you would see six very important items. This is the furniture, as it were, in God's house, in his tent where he dwelt. And these were essential components for Israel's worship of Yahweh. And we're going to just briefly survey these before we get to a few takeaways this morning. And, And the place where Exodus starts in chapter 25, verses 10 through 22, it starts with the first item they were to construct. And that was to be the Ark of the Covenant, Again, we see this in chapter 25, starting in verse 10. They make an ark of acacia wood. There's the measurements given for it. It's given rings so that they could put poles through it for transportation. And it was to be overlaid with gold. You say, why do they call it an ark? What is an ark anyway? Ark comes from a Latin word. It just means, um, it just means a chest, a protective container. It's a box. It's made out of wood overlaid with gold. And what's interesting about this, before we even look at the details, is to notice that this was the first thing God told Moses to build. If you've been kind of paying close attention last week and this week, the instructions for the ark are actually given before the instructions for the tabernacle. The ark is not for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is for the ark. It's the, the ark is to be the focal point of the whole thing, and it's going to be housed in the most holy place, in the inner sanctuary. You say, what's so special about this ark? Well, if you look down in verse 22, we see what's special about it. God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The ark represents the presence of God. That was why this was the first thing that needed to be built. That's why this was the only thing that was found in the most holy place. And the design of the ark communicates glory. We've seen throughout scripture that glory and the radiance of God's glory is something portrayed in various ways. We see the fire in the burning bush representing the glory of God. We found that there's this pillar of flame that led them through the wilderness, the glory of God. And as they come to Mount Sinai, there's this fiery glory on the top of the mountain. And this glory is to be reflected or represented throughout the tabernacle by the use of gold. All the different items in the tabernacle were overlaid with gold. And this communicates to us glory. In addition, the ark has two cherubim, these angelic creatures. They were fashioned out of hammered gold that were placed on top of the ark, and they faced inward, their wings arch up, covering the top. These cherubim were angelic creatures, as we mentioned last week, that guard the very temple, the, 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 the heavenly temple of God, his throne room. This is what Isaiah and Ezekiel saw when they saw visions of the glory of God in the eternal heavenly temple. They saw these cherubim, these marvelous creatures. And again, back in the book of Exodus chapter 3, we see that two cherubim are placed to guard the entrance to the garden so that sinful man could not go back in to where the holy God dwelt and to where the tree of life was. So these cherubim are protective and they symbolize God's glory and his presence 
They're embroidered on the curtain as well. We talked about that last week. But this communicates to us God's presence and his glory that they're placed here above the ark. But you might be wondering, according to what verse 17 says, and it's mentioned again in 22, what is this mercy seat? What what does that mean in verse 17? Well, if you've grown up uh, as a Christian, um, if you've grown up in the church, perhaps you've been around kind of Christian language, you've probably heard this term mercy seat. It comes from the King James version of the Bible, and it's sort of carried through in several modern translations, like the New American Standard and the ESV. It uses mercy seat. This comes from William Tyndale's translation in 1530. And this idea of mercy seat was also used by Martin Luther in his German translation in 1523. And without going too deep into the Hebrew, um, I just want to say that the mercy seat, while this captures beautifully sort of the imagery of what's going on, it's not actually the clearest English translation in a literal sense. Uh, The word used in the Hebrew text is really the noun form of a verb that's very common. And the verb that's translated here, mercy seat, or the the noun of that verbal form, has to do with making atonement. Mercy seat could be probably better translated, and several translations do, as sort of an atonement covering for the ark. It's a place of atonement. It's a special lid for the ark of the covenant that has everything to do with atonement. So the word for this is, is caporet, And you might recognize the root of that word. We know the Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur. So Kippur, Kaporet, we see there's a word play going on here. That the mercy seat is the place where atonement is made. The New uh, International Version and the NET also uh, translates it as atonement cover or atonement lid. Um, So this was the place where once a year the high priest would come in, according to Leviticus 16, and seven times would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. This was the place as God's footstool, the place where he dwelt, where atonement had to be made. So that's what mercy seat has to do with. And, And so it's less of a place where God sits. And while it is merciful that God would receive atonement, really, you need to think about this idea of atonement being made at the mercy seat. That's this important part of the Ark of the Covenant that Moses is supposed to have built. So the Ark represents God's presence. It has this focus on atonement. It it displays his glory, but it also contains something very important. We see this in verse 21. It says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. The testimony is the tablets of stone that contained the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. Later, other items would be placed there as well. But in the beginning, when they first constructed the tabernacle, this was the only thing inside the ark. And it was the basis of their relationship with God. It was this covenant that connected them with their God, the document that bound them to him. So because of his covenant with them, because atonement was made for sin, this was the place where God would meet with Moses and speak to him. So the Ark of the Covenant was the first thing they constructed, and it was in the center of the tabernacle sanctuary. If we were to move outward from the most holy place into the first room of the tabernacle, the holy place, we find three other items. First of all, we would see the table. We find this in chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. 
And while only the high priest could enter into the holy place, the most holy place, rather, once a year, this outer room, as we mentioned last year, was a place where the priests would daily come to perform their duties and to offer worship to God and to to serve and do the things they were supposed to do. And within this holy place, there was this table with the bread of the presence. It says in verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. And then he gives the dimensions for that. It's to be, according to verse 24, overlaid with pure gold. It also has four rings so that they could put poles through it and carry it. And then we find out that it has plates and dishes in verse 29 that are to be set. The table is set for a meal. And then verse 30, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Why was there a table set with food? Well, it's important to understand that the food here, unlike the pagan deities, unlike the way that idols were often worshipped in that day, the food was not for God. The food was for his people. God is not a God who needs his people to provide for him. Rather, he is a God who provides for and nourishes his worshippers. The 12 loaves placed on the table signify his perfect provision for his people, the 12 tribes of Israel. We see the same idea present in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus feeds 5,000 and there's 12 baskets of leftovers symbolizing God's perfect provision for his people. This bread was to be set before him regularly. This is all about God's hospitality. His table is always set. He's always prepared to host his guests, his friends, his family. God welcomes them into his presence for a fellowship meal. That's what this table is all about In addition to the table, we find there is a lampstand. We see this in verse 31, a lampstand of pure gold. And we see all the descriptions of it with its branches and stems and cups to hold the oil. The oil would have a wick placed in it that would be lit. So this this isn't like a candlestick. It's an oil-burning lamp. It says in verse 40, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. We pointed out last week that Moses is not just taking notes on a verbal description. Moses is being shown something. He's being shown something. And what he sees is this, is this special lamp that has, has a central stem with six branches, three coming off each side. So there would have been seven lamps that were lit, symbolizing completion and perfection. And again, this is a heavenly pattern. While we pointed out last week, there's perhaps some imagery here with this lamp pointing us back to the tree of life in the garden, perhaps even even reminding them of the burning bush and and the light of God that shone forth from that plant. Ultimately, this is a heavenly vision that Moses is seeing. In Zechariah and in Revelation, we find two different visions of heaven and this imagery of a golden lampstand. And remember, Hebrews tells us that all the tabernacle items are patterned after greater spiritual realities, heavenly realities. So what is the significance of the lamp? Why would God tell them to put a lamp in the holy place? Well, remember, this tabernacle, this tent, is the place where God camped and dwelt with his people, as it were. And while God doesn't need any light in his house, people do. So this, again, is God's provision, just like the table for bread It provided light for the priests to see, and it was supposed to be kept burning around the clock, which is interesting. You know, all the people would have had lamps in their tents as well, not as fancy as this and not with seven, but they would have put their lamps out at night. They would have gone to sleep. 
But God never sleeps. Chapter 27 says that this lamp is to be kept burning continually. God never rests. And just like, what is it? Is it Motel 6 or Motel 8? We'll leave the lights on for you. You guys remember those commercials? The lamp is always lit in God's home. He's always there. And he's always ready to receive his worshipers. That's what the light would have symbolized. In the holy place, in addition to the table for bread and the lampstand, you also would have seen an altar for incense. This is in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. We find all the descriptions for this altar. Once again, made of acacia wood. Once again, overlaid with pure gold. This altar was to be cleansed, to have atonement made for it, according to verse 10, once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. So they would have come in and sort of annually atoned for this altar to purify it and set it apart. And it was not, this altar was not for sacrifices. They never were to kill an, an animal on this altar or to pour out um, a drink offering on this altar. It was for burning incense, which represented the prayers of God's people. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, John tells us about these bowls that contain incense, which he says are the prayers of the saints. Psalm 141, verse 2, the psalmist writes, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Incense would have been these, this special compound of spices that would have been burned on this altar, and it would have smelled really good. And it was a unique fragrance. They were only allowed to use a certain kind of incense on this altar, and they weren't allowed to use this incense for anything else. So it was wholly unique, set apart And the smoke from this altar would have drifted in beyond the curtain into the most holy place, to the the place where the ark was, to the place where God's presence dwelled, symbolizing God receiving their prayers. So this would have been the three items you found in the holy place, the table, the altar for incense, and the lamp. But if we move outside the, the tabernacle structure itself to the courtyard, there were two other very important implements. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, tells us about a bronze altar. This too, according to verse 8, was to be made according to the pattern Moses saw on the mountain. And if you were entering the tabernacle from the outside, if you were to come in the gate that always faced east, this sort of 30-foot entrance to the outer perimeter, the first thing you encountered would have been this altar would have been the first thing you saw. And it was here that the priests would sacrifice animals for the burnt offering and the peace offering and and other important sacrifices as well. This altar would feature prominently in the many rituals that the priests performed on behalf of the people. Sacrifice was the first thing that needed to happen. And sacrifice was to be central to their worship. So the bronze altar would have been the first thing you saw. And if you moved beyond the bronze altar, coming closer to the tabernacle structure, you would have found a bronze basin for washing. We see that in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 30. And this bronze basin, interestingly, if you flip over to chapter 38, it tells us that they built it and they made it out of resources that they had. And it says that women gave their bronze mirrors for the construction of this this basin. In that day, you couldn't just go to Walmart and buy, you know, a plastic mirror with a little glass insert, you know, to see yourself. They used bronze and they polished it as best they could and you could see your reflection that way. So here's what's pretty cool. Um, These women donated their bronze 
because they knew that beholding the Lord was more important than beholding themselves in their own reflection. That could be a rabbit trail. We're not going to go there. Let the reader understand. You guys think about that. Um, But this wash basin was very important for their worship. It wasn't for scrubbing dirt off. This isn't about just taking a bath to get clean. The wash basin was used for ceremonial purity. This is a ritual that the priests were to perform to cleanse their hands and their feet before they entered into the holy place. Psalm 24, verse 3 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. They must be made holy. Sins must be atoned for. That's what the altar is about. And then defilement must be removed. That is what the wash basin was to to be used for. And twice it's emphasized um, in this chapter that it's so important that the priests do this so that they do not die. So they do not die. Two times. It says this in verse 20, that they shall wash with water at the end of the verse so that they may not die. And again in verse 21, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. To enter God's presence, to go into the holy place, let alone the most holy place. If you were defiled, if you were ceremonial, unclean, That would be to forfeit your life. God is holy, and it's dangerous for unholy sinners to enter into his presence without going through the proper provisions that he has has provided for them to be made clean. So these are all the items you would find in the tabernacle. We just sort of rewind. If you enter into the tabernacle, there's the altar where atonement for sin is made. Then you find the basin where water is used for cleansing. Then you enter into the holy place with light from the the lampstand, bread of the presence set on the table, and the altar of incense, which is is offering this sweet-smelling aroma into the most holy place. You go beyond the curtain into the, the inner sanctuary, And there is the Ark of the Covenant. The lid for atonement where blood has been sprinkled. It contains the word of God, the basis for their covenant relationship with him. It's there where the cherubim face inward with their wings covering, guarding the presence of God. And it's there that God himself would meet with Moses and speak to him on behalf of the people. So it's pretty awesome to think about how all this is put together. And if you're the kind of person who likes history, you might find all of this very, very interesting, just from an information standpoint. And if you aren't interested in history, you might find all of this very, very boring. You might say, I don't care about what they made all their stuff out of, and all of this imagery and symbolism seems kind of irrelevant to me. But listen, no matter who you are, whether you're interested or uninterested in these details, we need to ask a very important question this morning. What is it that God is trying to reveal to us about himself? What is it that God is teaching us about his ways and his nature and his purposes in a text like this? Well, I'd like to point out this morning three important truths I think we can draw from all of the furniture in the tabernacle. So all of that is sort of context and and introduction and sort of detail explaining what it was. Now let's talk about what it means. Number one. There is a glorious provision for Israel in the tabernacle. That's one thing that we should take away from reading chapters like this, that this is God's glorious and gracious provision for Israel. 
We've been making this point almost every week as we've talked about the law and talked about the tabernacle and talked about these things. But because it's such a central truth, it bears repeating. This is pure and undiluted grace. That's what it is. It's grace for the children of Israel. It's a blessing given to them greater than they could have ever dreamed. This is God's gracious accommodation to them, that he would dwell among them and and grant them the privilege and the opportunity to have his presence in their midst. The fact that God would bestow light upon them, that he would invite them to fellowship at his table, that he would receive their prayers, that he would cleanse them from sin and provide atonement for their wrongdoings. All of this, all of this is crucial. It is necessary for them to be able to enjoy an ongoing relationship with their God. They came to the mountain. God said, stay back. His presence is at the top. But he says, I'm going to come down. And although I am holy, and you typically are not, I'm going to make a way for this covenant relationship to be maintained day after day, month after month, year after year. God is not a God who remains on high, expecting his people to figure out a way to climb up to the top, to figure out a way to do something that might please him, to do something that might deal with our sin and somehow make us holy. No, God draws near to his people. He comes to them. He gives these instructions to them. He makes provisions for them. So all the furniture in the tabernacle tells us much about the heart of God, about his gracious revelation and his gracious giving of himself so that his covenant people might enjoy ongoing relationship with him. You see, these people's greatest need was to know God and to be rightly related to him so that his presence would remain with them. And in the tabernacle, and especially what happens in the tabernacle, This is exactly what God provides. He meets their need. So the tabernacle is a glorious provision for Israel. But secondly, in the tabernacle, we find a glorious pattern for worship. There's a glorious pattern for worship in the tabernacle. Consider what all these different things teach us about what it means to worship God and what is required. The altar teaches us that approaching God requires atonement for sin. You can't come to God if your sins haven't been dealt with. And this is true not just for Israel, but in every age. We need forgiveness. And Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. The basin likewise teaches us that approaching God requires cleansing from defilement. God is holy, and so his people must be holy. Matthew 5.8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can flip that around. Those who are not pure, they will not see God. James 4.8 urges us, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But this requires something. James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There is cleansing from defilement and sin that must take place. And the basin shows God's provision for that, but also his requirement of that. Likewise, the lampstand teaches us that approaching God, drawing near to him, worshiping him and being in his presence, it depends on the light that he provides. God is light, John tells us, and in him there is no darkness at all. We as his worshipers 
are invited to enter the light. We're called to walk in the light. And we approach God in dependence upon what he provides. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the word of God for us. His word is like a lamp for our feet, light for our path. We're dependent on what God provides through his spirit, through his word, as we draw near to worship him. The table for the bread of the presence teaches us something as well, that approaching God depends on the nourishment and the life he provides. And this is good news. This is encouraging to us, that our worship is not us offering God something he needs. He doesn't need a bunch of people to get together on Sunday morning and sort of reinforce his insecurities and tell him how great he is. That's not what worship is. He does not need our praise. But he invites us to draw near and to enjoy the gift it is to worship him. And it's our faith that comes away strengthened. It's an amazing thing that God would provide life and nourishment We rejoice today in a Christ who meets all our needs. As we sang this morning from the 23rd Psalm, he's the one who prepares this table before us, even in the presence of our enemies. We serve a God who is faithful to provide and who invites us to fellowship with him in his dwelling place. Grace means that we today are benefiting from his hospitality We are in his house, guests being treated like family and invited to his table to enjoy the benefits of his grace. The altar of incense teaches us about worship as well. That as we draw near to God, he delights to hear our prayers. He hears us, the sweet aroma of our petitions to God enter into his very throne room and that it is precious to him. God is pleased when we pour out our hearts in prayer before him. Just as the incense burned morning and evening, so our God calls us to pray without ceasing. The Ark of the Covenant teaches us about worship as well. It tells us that approaching God in worship ultimately aims to behold his glory. I read earlier from Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing, David writes, I have asked of the Lord. That I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. David says, I'm not a priest, but you know what I wish? I wish I could go into the presence of God. David says, I know that the high priest gets to go in once a year, but I wish I could live there and behold the beauty of his glory and splendor. This is what true worshipers ultimately are seeking. And this is the end goal. The soul-thrilling experience of beholding the presence of God. But the ark tells us not only that this is possible, but it it depends on atonement. For us to experience something like that, to be in the presence of God and behold the glory of of his person, it means that blood has to be shed. The mercy seat, the atonement covering for the ark, has to be marked by blood. It depends on atonement. Only once atonement has been made can we stand before God. Only when atonement has been made can we meet with him and he can speak with us. And this kind of worship is ultimately founded on the word, isn't it? Just as the tablets, the foundational documents of the covenant were kept in the ark, so all of our worship today is ultimately regulated by and based upon and connected to the word of God. We worship because of what is written. 
We come in boldness and faith because of what has been written here. And we worship according to all that has been written. Just as they were careful to obey all of these requirements and instructions for worship. So we come to God not just in any way that we choose. But according to the way that he has revealed in his written word. So the tabernacle gives us a glorious pattern for worship. Worship both in their day and in ours. And while all these things, all of the provision and accommodation for this kind of worship was provided by God to Israel in the tabernacle, get this, each and every one of these things has been provided for us today. Not through the furniture in the tabernacle, but through Jesus Christ himself. That's the third point I want to bring out this morning is that there is a glorious picture of Christ in the tabernacle. A glorious picture of Christ and what he has done to draw us near to God. Everything that the tabernacle communicates, everything that the tabernacle portrays is done more perfectly and done permanently, once and for all, in Jesus. The one who tabernacled among us, as John writes in chapter one of his gospel. He is the one who embodies everything that is needed. He is the one who provides everything that we lack. He is the one who makes it possible for sinful man to enjoy an ongoing relationship with a holy God. Let's walk through the furniture again and think about how this points us to Jesus. As we enter into the tabernacle, we come to an altar. But today, with the New Testament in our hands and Christ's work completed, we know that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate sacrifice who atones for our sin. And just as the altar was the first thing you would have seen when you enter into the tabernacle, so too for us, the cross is the first stop for everyone who would enter the kingdom of God. It's the first stop. There is no other path. There is no other alternative. There's one way in. And the first stop requires sacrifice. It is the cross of Jesus that atones for sin. Or it is nothing that can atone for sin. And it is the cross of Jesus alone that completely atones for sin. When you go into the tabernacle, there's not a bronze altar for sacrifice and then another altar later for more sacrifices. No, once the sacrifice is made, then you can continue on, coming deeper and deeper into the holy presence of God. For us, it is Jesus and his work alone that is needed. There's no other way. He is the only way. But his work is also perfectly sufficient. His sacrifice was made once and for all. And Jesus said it is finished. We don't add anything to it. So for all whose sins have been dealt with at that altar that was shaped like a cross, we can now move further on and further in and draw near to God. As you go beyond the altar, you come to the basin. But scripture teaches us that Christ not only atones for sin at the cross, but he also offers us cleansing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we're told of many different types of sin that keep people out of the kingdom of God. And as we read that list, it's almost impossible not to find ourselves in it somewhere. But 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says this. It says, such were some of you, but you were washed You were washed, you were sanctified or made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
There is a washing that is granted to us because of what Jesus did. Titus 3.5 puts it this way, that God saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There is a washing that comes through Christ, and it is this that makes us clean. It's not our works. It's not me turning over a new leaf. It's not me getting really good at breaking bad habits and building good habits. No, it's the work of Christ that washes and cleanses us from sin. The washing in the old covenant was ceremonial, and it was temporary. It had to be repeated. But there is a washing that is promised in the new covenant that comes through Jesus that is given not just to the priests, but to all God's people. Ezekiel 36, 25 says this, that in this new covenant that God will provide for his people, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Guys, Jesus comes to do this. Jesus comes to fulfill this promise, to bring about this new covenant blessing for everyone who trusts in his name. We see this at work in his ministry, that he washes the disciples' feet. And we see it in his death on the cross, that when the spear pierces his side, there's both blood that comes out, because Jesus has atoned for sin, and also water, showing that he cleanses us from all sin. The wash basin points us to the cleansing work of Christ. As we enter into the tabernacle itself, leaving the courtyard behind us, we come into the holy place and we consider the lamp. And it's hard not to instantly think of Jesus' words in the Gospel of John when he says, I am the light of the world. Just as the lamp was the announcement of God's presence, even in the darkest nights for Israel, so Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and he came to dwell among us. Again, this is what God had promised to do for his people. Isaiah 49.6 says about this coming Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Listen, the light that comes through Jesus doesn't just help us to walk around and not stub our toe. It's actually salvation. It is life. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life. In Jesus, we find light and truth. We find life and freedom. This is why to reject, to reject Jesus, to turn away from him, to ignore him and refuse his claim on you and to dismiss his free offer of salvation is to choose death. It is to walk in darkness. But those who embrace Christ by faith, his light dwells in us and we become like lamps. His light shines through us into a dark world. And for those who have received the light of Christ, one day we will see this light. We will see his glory. Revelation 21 tells us that one day the light of Christ, the radiance of his glory, will replace the need to even have a son. Revelation 21, 23, as John beholds the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, he says, the city 
has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's Christ. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The lampstand points us to Jesus, to who he is, to the life and the salvation that he provides for people who walk in darkness. In addition to the lamp, on the other side of the room, there's a table. And again, we go to John's gospel and are reminded that Jesus is not only the light of the world, but he's also the bread of life. He is God's provision for his worshipers. Jesus says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As we look at the table, we are reminded that our worship and our life does not depend on what we give to God, but on what God has given to us. And he has given us his son. Jesus offered his body on the tree so that we could have life. In addition to the table and the lamp, in the holy place, as we draw near to the curtain, to the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place, right in front of that curtain is the altar of incense. And we're reminded that this too points us to Christ because Jesus is the one who sanctifies our prayers. The reason, reason we pray in Jesus' name is not just some habit, it's not just some tradition of Christianity that many people will say, in Jesus' name, Amen. The reason we pray in Jesus' name is because it's on the basis of his work. It's because of his cleansing, his atonement. It's because of his promise. It's because of his invitation that we come to the Father and offer our prayers to him. And we can come boldly and consistently and with faith and confidence that our prayers will be heard, not because of us, not because of how good we are at praying, not even because of how desperate our needs are, but we come because of Jesus. Because we know that Christ sanctifies our prayers and makes them pleasing to God. Not only does Christ sanctify our prayers, but even better, Jesus actually prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. As we consider the altar of incense and the prayers that are brought in to the very presence of the holy God, we know that it's only because of Jesus that we are heard, and even better, that Jesus prays for us and with us. And as we come beyond the curtain, come beyond the veil, and behold the ark itself, this too points us to Jesus Christ. The ark is about glory. It's about the presence of God. It's about meeting with God and hearing from him. And all of this points us to Jesus, to who he is and what he has done. John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says this. He says, we have seen his glory. It's like we were in the most holy place and beheld the glory of God when we looked at Jesus. We've seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's in Christ that the presence of God dwells among us, and he is glorious. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, while the disciples, the apostles in the, in the days of 
Christ's life on earth. They saw him with their eyes. We behold him today by faith. And Paul writes this, that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we look by faith to Jesus and we believe him, we're able to grasp in our hearts something of the very nature of the glory of God. That is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. When we look to Christ, we see his glory. We see the glory of God. We're not only seeing something, we're receiving something. Because as we come to Jesus, we're meeting with God. He is our atonement, and he is also the living word. It's no longer tablets of stone that are the basis of our relationship with God. It is the living word, Jesus himself, who embodies and fulfills the law. And it's on the basis of what Jesus does that our relationship with God is secured and maintained. And it's because of this that one day we will not only behold the glory of God in the face of Christ by faith, but one day we will actually see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes back, John writes that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Think about that. One day, those who know Christ will see him face to face, and this will have a transforming effect on us. The growth and the change that we experience as Christians, as we look to Christ and and degree by degree, it says uh, in Corinthians, we're being changed from one degree of glory to another. Consider what will happen when we actually see him face to face. Consider the, the profound effect that will have on us. That is what's going to happen. And it's even better than going into the Holy of Holies and seeing the ark. It's seeing Jesus. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Again, referring to this eternal city that is to come. And his servants will worship him. And then verse 4 says this, They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Friends, I know this is a lot of information. And we're looking at a lot of different passages today. But here's my, my, my hope for you this morning. I hope that you will consider this morning the magnitude of Christ's work for you. Consider the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. Consider that he is more for us than we typically think of. And that we need him more desperately, daily, than we probably tend to think about. I hope that the tabernacle will point you to Christ. That you would consider the magnitude of what Jesus has provided for you. The magnitude of what Jesus has accomplished for you. The magnitude of what he has made possible for sinners. The tabernacle shows us God's glorious provision for Israel and a glorious pattern for worship, but it also shows us a glorious picture 
of Christ. And my hope is that this morning, if you know Jesus, that these truths would spur your heart to marvel at his grace and to rejoice in his provision for you. As we open this worship service this morning by reading from Psalm 27, and David says, there's one thing I want to see. There's one thing that matters. There's one thing that I need. Maybe that's something that you couldn't have said this morning. Maybe Jesus had become small in your eyes. That the glory of Christ and his accomplishment is something that, yes, you probably know about some of these things, but it's easily forgotten. It's easily set aside. And our eyes are drawn to other things. And we tend to feel and to think deep down inside that there is something I need. And yes, God, thank you for sending your son to save me. And Jesus, I'm grateful for salvation. But this stuff over here is is really pressing right now. We need to be reminded that this is the one thing that matters. And this one thing that we need, this one thing that matters most, is one thing that can be had in Christ. For those of us who know him, don't forget that. And if you don't know Christ, this is the one thing. You need what Jesus can provide. You need atonement for your sin. Jesus does that on the cross. You need cleansing from defilement. Jesus is the one who can wash you. You need life eternal, and Jesus provides that as the living bread and the light of the world. You need access to the Father, and Jesus is the one who pleases the Father perfectly so that you can enter in to the most holy place and behold his glory and know him and dwell with him face to face. That's what you need more than anything else in the world. So I hope that you see that. Christian, I hope that you love this and that it spurs you to rejoice in God's gracious provision. May we today lay hold of these gifts by faith and receive Christ and all that he is for us and rejoice in his ministry for us, his ministry to us because he is the one who has brought us near to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are everything for us. We often sing, all I have is Christ, that Jesus is my life. I pray that that would be true for this church, Lord Jesus, today. And if there is something of faith or joy or confidence that is lacking, Lord, we pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would increase our faith and our joy and our confidence in Christ. Lord, help us to look to the cross and see the blessings of grace that flow to us because of the sacrifice that was made there. And as we study things like the tabernacle and all the furniture that is inside that tabernacle, help us to understand what is really required to have a relationship with you and to, and to worship you rightly. And I pray that it would help us to see the centrality of Jesus Christ. May he be preeminent in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, may we echo the psalmist and say that there's one thing we desire. We want to know you, to see you, and to dwell with you forever. And Lord, as we express that desire today, we also express our gratitude that we will experience it because of Jesus. It's given to us through him. So we praise and glorify you today for your goodness and grace and ask that all would see your greatness. Amen.